Good evening. Welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On this program, we talk often about race and gender politics. What we haven't had an opportunity to do is to talk about the intersection in looking at racial and gender politics in the United States and Brazil. We are delighted to have as our guest this evening, the Dan T. Blue Endowed Chair here at North Carolina Central University, Dr. Gladys Mitchell Walthour. Dr. Mitchell Walthour, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. So before we um, talk about, you've got a symposium coming up and, and we're going to talk about that. But first, can you share with us a little bit of your background and how you made your way to NCCU? Yes, I certainly can. So originally I am from Kannapolis, North Carolina. And um, so I grew up, um, it's, you know, a small town is growing, but it's a small town. Um, and so I grew up with my um, family always really celebrating Black culture. And so I remember my mom, she would, you know, buy me books on like um, Egyptians and ancient Egypt. And then my father, he would, he would require that we read um, books by Black authors and that we had to discuss these books with him. So that was uh, my, uh, you know, being raised in North Carolina. And then of course my grandmother was um, lived right across the street. So we were always at her house and she was always emphasizing education. Um, also my dad made sure that he exposed us to HBCUs. So even though I didn't go to a HBCU, I remember as a kid coming to North Carolina Central's homecoming, um, someone from our neighborhood was crowned um, one year. Um, and so that was just kind of a part of my life. Um, you know, North Carolina has many um, HBCUs. So HBCUs have always kind of been a part of my life. Um, and so I went to undergrad at Duke, you know, right down the street. Um, and I also have a twin sister. So we both went to Duke. <laughs> um, and, and it was there as a second year student that um, I took a class on Afro-Brazilian history and culture. And that really got me interested in Brazil. And I was also able to travel to Latin America um, during undergrad. Um, and so I just was, you know, really interested. And, and yeah, so I majored in political science and I also majored in African and African-American studies. Um, and so after Duke, I went to the University of Michigan, um, Ann Arbor for my Master of Public Policy. And there I continued to do more uh, international policy and economic policy. Um, and I still had Brazil in the background, like I did an independent study, um, continued to travel. I was just mentioning how I went to South Africa. I worked there one summer. 
Um, but I still felt like I needed to be doing some type of work where I could actually talk with people rather than just running economic models and thinking about you know, policies. And so that's when I decided to pursue a PhD. Um, and so I went to the University of Chicago um, and I uh, pursued a PhD in political science and I studied Afro-Brazilian political behavior. And yeah, so that's just a little of my trajectory. Uh, you know, afterwards, I actually came back to North Carolina for a little bit. I had a, a postdoc at Duke for a year. And then um, the year after that, I did some teaching at uh, North Carolina A&T and then also Elon. Um, but then after that, that's when I left and uh, was back in the Midwest for a very long time, basically until 2022. Um, when I came back, um, you know, with this position at North Carolina Central. So um, after a little over 20, you know, some years, <laughs> I came back to North Carolina um, and I'm very happy to be here. So you mentioned that you um, worked in, in South Africa um, back in 2001. We were talking before we actually um, started recording and we were talking about um, Irv, he, you know, organized a number of trips to South Africa with our students. I had the pleasure of joining him a couple of times. And uh, it was such an amazing experience for, I know, um, Irv and, and me as a professor going and being able to see um, how the students, how, how that international trip impacted these students, many of whom had never been outside of the country before. Can you talk just a little bit about how, why it's so important to be exposed to what's going on outside of the boundaries of the United States. Yes, I think um, it's, it's so important. Um, and so becoming, before coming to um, Central, I was in a black studies department. So I taught at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the African and African diaspora studies department. So, what is so special about Black studies and just Black history in general is the kind of the internationalism or transnational nature of, um, of studying Black people and striving for Black liberation. So for me, it's really important because Black people, we have always done this, right? I think about the Haitian Revolution Black people around the world were inspired by the Haitian Revolution. So I think it's really important um, for young people, for students to think about um, other places outside of the United States. And it's really amazing, you know, when you travel throughout the world, most of my work is on Brazil. So I just think about, you know, when I go to Brazil, people know what's going on in the United States. They know all of our leaders. They can tell you about um, what happened to Michael Brown. They can tell you about Sandra Bland. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a real shame when as, as um, black people, we don't always know what's going on in the world. Well, and, and especially young people, um, but, you know, being an educator, we have the opportunity, right? To expose um, students. Um, so, just this semester, I'm teaching a class on comparative politics. Um, it's a seminar. And, and so we talk about how Black people are seeking liberation throughout Latin America, right? Um, and then we integrate 
um, experiences and the history of, of Black people here in the U.S. So for me, it's really important because in general, if we are striving for freedom and liberation, then we need to know about the efforts um, that other Black people around the world have made and are, you know, and are engaged in today to, to basically to seek freedom. What, what was it that uh, sparked your interest in uh, Brazil? Uh, I mean, African-American, well, people of African descent are all over the world. And, uh, and I know that uh, Brazil, Brazil has a, a very uh, exotic uh, history, uh, intriguing uh, history, but coming from uh, Kannapolis, uh, what was it uh, about that particular uh, experience that uh, drew you to it? Yeah, so actually, I remember when we had a huge increase of Latinos um, in North Carolina in like the late 90s. And so I remember in my hometown and then also in the, the neighboring hometown of Concord, I kept seeing very dark skin um, people speaking Spanish. Um, and, and I remember talking with some people. And they just thought it was so funny that I was calling them, you know, Afro-Mexicans or Black Mexicans, because for them, um, and again, a lot of this, you know, in terms of identity is changing. But at the time, they were like, they didn't, they weren't really thinking that way. Um, so um, even though clearly, like some of them were darker than me. Um, and so people didn't always have that same type of uh, way of talking about race. So I just found that intriguing. Um, and then going to um, to Duke, especially after I took the this class on Afro-Brazilian history and culture taught by John French, um, we would, I remember learning about, um, you know, Black Brazilian history, but also seeing these videos um, where people were either participating in different religious practices, such as African-derived religions, or just showing um, and talking about resistance movements. And so that really was the thing that sparked me. So it was already kind of having this experience in my hometown when we were having these increases of, um, of Mexicans, but also um, of Afro-Mexicans and, and then going off to college and learning more about, you know, how, you know, how you just said, right? There are people of African descent everywhere around the globe. Um, but it was really that class that, that sparked my interest in Brazil. So, um... Can you tell us a little bit about your scholarship? So you've got um, a love and, and extreme interest in race and gender politics. <laughs> tell us a little bit about your, your scholarship and kind of what you focus on. Yes. Um, so a lot of my um, earlier work really focused on this notion of black group identity in Brazil. Um, so in the political science literature on Black politics in the U.S., there's this notion of um, what Michael Dawson terms Black-linked fate. And this is the idea that African-Americans, uh, a high percentage of African-Americans display 
um, Black linked fate because they feel like what happens to other Blacks also affects them. Even if it's not, so for example, um, and that that notion of linked fate has an impact on policy support. So an example of this would be maybe there is a social welfare program, right? And it's not a racial program, right? But it's, it could be for low income people. But if I feel like um, that there are low income African-Americans who could benefit from the program, even though I don't personally benefit, um, if I feel attached to that group, I would support that program. And then we could also think about uh, more racial programs such as affirmative action or something like that. Someone who displays this linked fate um, would be more likely to support a racial policy that would benefit Blacks as a group. So that's just the, that's an example in the US. So then I started thinking, well, I wonder if something like that exists in Brazil. Um, and so what I did um, for my dissertation work was lots of survey work um, and then also some interviews. So for my uh, first single author book, uh, some of that is based off of those surveys, but then also I kept going back to Brazil to do all these interviews um, in a number of cities, including Salvador, which is in the Northeast, which is 80% Afro-Brazilian. Um, and then Sao Paulo, which is a huge city, well, the largest city in Brazil. Um, and the population is about 33% Afro-Brazilian, but there's a lot of black movement activism. So um, I did the survey work, I did um, interviews. Also, I should add on, I also did some work in Rio, which I'm sure <laughs> most people have heard of. Um, and Rio is about 50% Afro-Brazilian. And so the question there, I used a very similar question. Well, I used the same question actually that um, scholars such as Michael Dawson used in the US case, but in Brazil, just, but of course using um, the Portuguese term or the Brazilian Portuguese term for blacks, which their kind of term for African-American, like an umbrella term is negro. Um, and so, so I used those terms in my survey. Um, and what I found um, is that there are high levels, very high levels. Um, so for some, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but for some, you know, we're talking uh, over 70%, things like this, um, for people who demonstrate this notion of linked fate. Um, so again, so for Afro-Brazilians, for those that believe that they um, feel connected to Afro-Brazilians as a larger group, um, after running, you know, the statistical analysis, um, I found that those people are more likely to support affirmative action policies. They're also more likely to vote for Black politicians. Um, and, and this may just sound like, okay, of course that makes sense. But in the political science literature, it was a, a big deal, um, especially in mainstream political science. Um, because people still believe that, oh, Brazil is so different. They're, you know, they have a history of racial mixture. So um, why would anyone even look at black group identity there? They don't have that in Brazil, um, but of course they do. And why? <laughs> because they've had lots of black resistance going back to slavery, right? When um, Africans and African descendants would actually run away, set up their own communities called quilombos. 
Um, so, and there were revolts, right? So we can go back to slavery to see that there was resistance and again, fighting for black freedom. So, um, so even though there was, you know, this myth of racial democracy or the idea that since there are racially mixed people, there's no racism, um, there's always been racism in Brazil. Um, and, and through those experiences of discrimination and also black movement activists talking about it, um, for me, um, part of that explains some of why you can see this notion of black link faith, right? Um, so that was kind of my um, early research. And then in terms of race and gender, my more recent work, um, and I have a book coming out um, June, 2023, that focuses on this work and is focused on um, black women's social welfare beneficiaries and their political opinions. So I look at Brazil and the United States for a very long time. I only looked at the, um, only looked at Brazil um, but increasingly, you know, I've um, I've been interested also in in this work looking at both countries, and um, I don't want to spill too much from the book. Um, but what is interesting is that um, so of course for 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 both groups, um, people. People experience right racial discrimination, gender discrimination. Um, some of that is different depending on the city, um, but also depending on the nation. So, um, what I found interesting is that in the United States we have this idea of meritocracy, right? So the idea here is that if you work hard, you will be <laughs> successful, um, and so that is our national myth. And so it's harder for Americans, including Black Americans, to perceive class discrimination. It's very easy for Black Americans to perceive um, racial discrimination. Um, and then um, it's also for some Black American women, including those in my sample, they don't always perceive gender discrimination because people are so focused on racial discrimination. And sometimes, when the women would talk about, like one of the questions was, do you feel like you've ever been, you know, treated badly because of your gender or something, or because of being a woman, something like that? They would say no, but then when they would talk and they would explicitly talk about experiences that were due to their gender, um, but they would, they would say, oh yeah, but that was racial discrimination. So um, that was interesting um, for some of the findings in the US and then in Brazil, um, except for Sao Paulo, um, a lot of women acknowledge um, racial dis or skin color discrimination there. But in Salvador, where it's 80% Afro-Brazilian, they have the lowest percentage of people who perceive skin color discrimination because they're just, you know, in general, if you talk to people, they'll say, we're 80% of the population. But when you look at the politicians, um, this is a city that has never elected a black mayor. Um, the people who control the wealth are white. Um, so some of, so the sample kind of mirrors the larger sample in that sense. Um, some of the other things that I get into in the book that are super interesting 
Um, is so Do Dr. Mitchell, Wathout, I'm going to pause right there because this is That's really fine. fascinating. And, I, and I've got some questions and I know Irv does as well, but we're going to have to take a quick break. So no put a pin in that. Um, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 19.7 FM. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Gladys Mitchell Wathauer. She is the Dan T. Blue Endowed Chair at North Carolina Central University. And we're talking this hour about racial and gender politics and the intersection and the similarities between the U.S. and Brazil. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host, Irving Joyner and I, have been talking with Dr. Gladys Mitchell, Mitchell Walkauer. She is the Dan T. Blue Endowed Chair at North Carolina Central University. And she is a scholar who focuses on the U.S. and Brazil and racial and gender politics. Dr. Mitchell Walkauer, you were talking right before the break about the research that you've been doing, kind of comparing and contrasting the, um, the impressions of women in Brazil when it comes to um, social welfare programs and views in the United States. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to have you expand upon just a little bit, you were saying how it was hard for some of the study participants to perceive uh, gender discrimination because oftentimes it's the racial discrimination that seems to come to the fore. Was that something that you found both with the individuals, with women in the United States and Brazil e equally, or was there some difference between how those two groups kind of perceived gender discrimination? Yes, um, so 
so, well, the first thing I should mention is that we did interviews, we did 40 interviews in each city. So in Brazil, the three cities were uh, San Luis, Sao Paulo, and Salvador. Um, so 120 for Brazil. And these were in-depth interviews. And then for the United States, um, we did interviews in Milwaukee, Chicago, and Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so there are some differences by city in, in, both, um, in both countries, but in general, um, you do, so you have different, again, it depends by city. So in Brazil, in some of the cities, people were more readily, um, or, or they, they were more likely to talk about gender discrimination, like they knew exactly what they looked, like what that looked like. But then you have um, in some places where, you know, in the United States, people acknowledged it, but the levels of acknowledgement for gender discrimination are just much lower um, than for racial discrimination. Um, and there were some women, like I remember some, a lot of times, actually for both countries, they talked about in terms of, of employment or trying to gain employment. Um, but there were some cases, I just remember this one case in, I think it was in Chicago, um, where this woman was talking about how her boyfriend roughs her up. Um, and it, it was basically it, it abuse. Um, but for her, that wasn't an example of gender discrimination. Um, and again, she just kind of veered off, you know, where she would talk about racial discrimination. In reply to the question about, you know, have you um, experienced uh, racial discrimination? So yeah, there are those differences. Um, the main ones that I can think about in terms of like just huge differences is the class um, and uh, skin co color or racial discrimination. So for the United States, much lower levels of perceiving class discrimination than Brazil, and then the opposite for Brazil. Brazil, lower levels of acknowledging skin color, skin color discrimination, but higher levels of acknowledging class discrimination. Well, let me just you know, ask you, know, with respect to the uh, economics and the politics of the uh, two countries, uh, what, what are the similarities uh, that exist between uh, Brazil and the uh, United States, and how does that uh, color your uh, interpretation of the uh, uh, responses that you receive from the uh, from your subjects in the two uh, in the two countries? Yes. So, um, for example, so in Brazil, Afro Brazilians are fifty six percent of the population. Now, when you look at, and this program has changed, um, they just recently had had an election. So I'm not sure like how the program is, if it's going to continue the way it has been. But the program that I looked at at the time in 2018 was called Bolsa Familia. And it's a social welfare program that was a conditional cash transfer program in Brazil that basically meant that every month, um, the household, usually the woman in the household, would receive a small stipend 
And um, the conditions were that they had to send children to school regularly and also to have regular um, medical checkups. For the Bosa Familia program, about 73% of those recipients were Afro-Brazilian. So just in terms of economics, that shows you the vulnerable position of, of Afro-Brazilians as well as Afro-Brazilian women. Now in the United States, I looked at two programs. Um, one was SNAP, which you know sometimes mm -hmm. people refer to as food stamps. And then the other was WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. And for that, 20.8% um, of people receiving WIC are African-Americans. And, um, and Blacks make up 25.6% of SNAP beneficiaries. Of course, in the general population, we are what 13%, right? So you can see an overrepresentation. but part of my work is looking at the intersectional nature of discriminations with an S, which mm -hmm. is why I had these questions about gender discrimination, class discrimination, and racial discrimination. So when you look at the intersection of, of identities, but also marginalization in both countries, you can see similar patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So in Brazil, um, and I don't have uh, the poverty rates pulled up or anything, um, but for the United States, one of the cities that I looked at, Milwaukee, if you all Google Milwaukee, Milwaukee is the worst for everything <laughs> for Black people. <laughs> Social mobility is, is the bottom. Um, um, like education, every, like seriously, everything is on bottom. And so the, I think it's, I think it was Milwaukee that has the highest poverty rate for Black people. Um, and that I was looking at yesterday, it's over 30%. Um, and so when, the, so the cities that I chose were of course due to cities that I, you know, that uh, were easy places for me to get to or that I was familiar with. But the other thing, just in terms of looking at the place of black people in both countries, um, it's very difficult <laughs> to be a black person in Brazil um, and, and in the US. Now, the thing that's different in the US, which I have to acknowledge, and that you know, even um, Afro-Brazilians will talk about is that we have HBCUs, right? We have over a hundred HBCUs in this country. So we have spaces that can actually improve the lives of black people, right? Where black people can, um, can get an education in a black environment, that means a lot. Um, now, on the other hand, for Brazil, they have um, affirmative action or quota programs in universities that have significantly increased the number of Afro-Brazilian students. Um, and so, for example, in some of these numbers, you can't, you can't fully trust um, just because there are some white Brazilians who will check the box to say that they are black um, to use a quota seat. Um, but now for the federal public universities, the official numbers say that they are majority Afro-Brazilian. And, and that's a huge deal for Brazil because public universities are the best universities and they are free 
we do not have that <laughs> in the United States. Like, can you imagine? So, um, you know, and that's still controversial uh, for people who aren't progressive in Brazil because people, people, when I say people, I mean white people. White people are very uncomfortable <laughs> in Brazil with black people being in those type of spaces, right? Being in spaces where they can get a quality education, where they can get employment, where they can, you know, um, white people had to get used to seeing black people in airplanes. And still I have friends today, um, black Brazilian friends, when they are on an airplane traveling, people speak to them in English and assume they are African-American. So all of these examples I'm giving you um, are just to kind of uh, give context to why, or to also show kind of the economic position of Afro-Brazilians, but also, um, you know, for Black Americans. Um, so we do have social mobility in this country, but it's still very difficult um, for, for Black people in this country. Um, and then, as I mentioned, when you start looking city by city, you can see how difficult it is in some places. Um, now, on, on, mon on, on, on Monday, you are having a conference uh, here at, uh, okay, Tuesday, I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, can, can you just talk about the, uh, the purpose of bringing in, uh, I think, legislators from, uh, from Brazil uh, with uh, uh, leaders from uh, the U.S. in the in this area uh, to talk about those distinctions and uh, uh, similarities and how people are quote are coping with the uh, situation that they're dealing with. Yes. So, um, so the conference is focused on Black women and politics, and the reason is and politics and not in politics is because not everyone. Um, so we'll have activists, academics, and politicians. And so, for example, my work, um, I'm looking at politics, but from a very broad way, right? Looking at low-income women and how what they do in everyday life is a form of resistance in politics. Um, but we do actually have politicians. So, for example, Mayor O'Neill, um, she will be there. Judge Josephine Davis um, will be there. Um, there's a city councilwoman from Rio, Monica Cunha, who will be there. Um, Dalila Negreros actually works in the executive office of the uh, of President Lula in Brazil. Um, and so my idea when I was thinking about the conference is um, so through throughout kind of my scholarship, but also in some other work that I do, such as the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil, um, I work with both African-Americans and Afro-Brazilians. And of course, for me, the end goal is always uh, coalition, alliance, and Black freedom. Um, and so I thought, wow, it would be so great if we could bring these women together to actually talk about what they do, but also to kind of exactly what we're doing now, like talk about similarities, differences, um, experiences, and how we can learn from each other. And I really think it's important to bring, to bring uh, Black women together to do this um, because they don't always get the opportunity, right? I mean, Black people in general, but especially Black women. Um, and so that was my idea. 
And on top of that, um, to have it in a black space is so important. I've been to um, conferences and spaces before where fortunately we were able to do this, you know, uh, you know, talk across uh, different countries. But for me, it's really special to be able to do that in a black space in an HBCU founded by a black person. Um, so it's really exciting to me. Um, and I and I I really look forward to not just the formal conversations, but just kind of the the everyday uh, conversations um, that people uh, can have with each other, just to you know to learn about their experiences. I do. Can I add one more thing? <laughs> <laughs> because I always see so many connections, um, and so I have to mention that. So March fourteenth, which you know just passed. Um, was the fifth year anniversary of Marielle Franco, who was a very well-known um, Black woman politician in Brazil, and that, and she was assassinated on March 14th. Mm. Coincidentally, her sister, Anielle Franco, graduated from North Carolina Central University. And um, so after her sister was assassinated, um, Anieli uh, started an institute. Um, her institute um, still exists, the Marielle Franco Institute. Um, we actually had her as a speaker for the National Conference of Black Political Scientists a, a couple of years ago. Um, she was actually invited to this conference, but um, she was appointed the Minister of Racial Equality for Brazil. Um, so every chance that I get to have to say that um, she graduated from North Carolina Central, I take advantage. Um, I, I just think it's so important um, because she spent, I think it was about 12 years in the United States, um, and she only went to HBCUs. So she also got a master's from another HBCU. Um, I think it was FAMU, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> but for sure, she, she graduated from North Carolina Central University. Um, so it's really important that um, that we talk, uh, you know, talk to each other because it's already happening. There's already this, you know, exchange among Black people. And Anieli talks about it all the time, how um, for her, it's part of how she kind of... Um, you know, just gained an appreciation for um, not only Black culture, but really Black politics, right? So she was sitting on this campus, right? And um, part of that was of her formation, her political formation. So I think it's, it's always important to bring these groups together formally because it's, it's already happening and it's, and it's, it's really important. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Mitchell Walthout uh, about the uh, race and gender uh, distinctions and similarities between uh, women in Brazil uh, and in the United States and her upcoming conference that will be held at uh, North Carolina Central. Uh, and want you to stay with us as we continue this discussion. So we will be right back.
Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU's School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are continuing our discussion about the uh, race and gender uh, politics uh, existing with uh, uh, women in uh, Brazil and the United States. Uh, And uh, we are really excited about the information that we are receiving and hope that uh, if you have an interest, and you should have one, uh, in attending the uh, conference that is uh, planned for uh, North Carolina Central. And uh, can you kind of give us some details about that conference for people who have an interest in attending? How will they uh, register for it? And uh, if there is a uh, fee uh, for that, and how much are you giving them for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So this is a free conference. <laughs> Um, and it's a day-long symposium. Um, we will have panels um, starting at 9.30, and then it'll end around 3.30 um, with lunch in between. So everything is free. Um, and yeah, so what is great, um, like I said, we have speakers. So one of the speakers I should mention is um, Dr. Sherelle Barber, who is actually William Barber's daughter, um, but she does work on um, health inequalities, and she just so happens, so the the politician that I mentioned earlier, uh, Marielle Franco, the day she was assassinated, she had um, kind of this meeting slash, I don't know if I want to call it a workshop, but more of like a meeting, um, but only for Black women, and Dr. Barber was there. So she was actually there. She ended up making a, a short film um, about her experience. She has a picture with Marielle Franco. Um, and so ever since then, she has done a lot of work um, similar to what I'm doing um, in terms of making sure there's this dialogue between Black Brazilians um, and Black Americans. And, and for Dr. Barber, um, she's really done some great work with um, Black Brazilian women academics who do uh, work in health, uh, epidemiology, and and all those type of things. So she will be here speaking um, about kind of those, you know, transnational um, building coalitions. Um, And then as I mentioned before, uh, Dalila Negreros will be here. I'm also speaking, Vilma Hayes is a very well-known um, Black Brazilian woman activist. Um, she's from Salvador. 
Um, and she actually ran for a federal position um, in Congress. She didn't, she didn't win, but she ran a very, very uh, good campaign. So she will be there and she just, she has a lot of um, experience um, with activism there. And so, yes, it's going to, you know, uh, be a number of speakers. Uh, like I mentioned, the, uh, in terms of politicians, Mayor O'Neill, the first African-American woman mayor of Durham. Um, and again, this is really, I think it, it can just create a lot of very interesting dialogue um, when you think about, like I mentioned, a place like Salvador, this, you know, 80% Afro-Brazilian and never elected a black mayor. Um, mm. I think that, you know, a lot of interesting conversations um, can happen around these type of things, um, but also just in terms of representation. And, you know, there's still a lot of Black underrepresentation um, in Brazil. Um, and I mean, in the US too, but especially in Brazil, just given that they are officially, you know, 56% of the population. That's the official number. Of course, it could be higher. Um, so yeah, so that that is part of it. Um, and there are, you know, certain things that that people will talk about in their individual uh, papers, but some will just be about like, you know, tell your story. So for mm -hmm. Judge Josephine Davis, as well as Mayor O'Neill, you know, how did you um, become mayor? How were, what are some of the issues that you um, tackle and think about? And the same thing for uh, the Brazilian politicians and activists. So I I really liked um, I've liked so much of what you said. Something that resonated with me quite a bit. You were saying that one of your goals in bringing these you know kind of separate groups together, separate but very similar groups together, is focusing on coalition, alliance, and and black freedom. And so so what does that look like? Um, so we have the dialogue. What do you hope might tangibly come out of this symposium or other kind of mm -hmm. gatherings of um, like-minded folks who live in different countries, but who have oftentimes very similar experiences? Yes. So practically, um, and Dr. Jonathan Livingston, we have both talked about this. Um, so just a very practical is a recruitment. <laughs> I would love to be able to recruit um, some uh, Black Brazilian students to North Carolina Central University. That would be, I would, you know. Um, so that's a practical thing. Um, the others are support, like supporting each other. One of the things that I do when I do work in Brazil is I hire Afro-Brazilian graduate students and undergraduate students, right? But I'm just one person. So what can other people do? Right. I just had um, over spring break, I attended the well and presented at the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. We also had two um, undergraduates from Central that presented there and won awards. They were wonderful. Um, but so one of the the things that happened when I was there is I had some colleagues who were talking about, oh, you know what? They don't do work on Brazil, but they are thinking about, oh, maybe I can do a comparative project. So of course, for me, I'm gonna put them in contact with people I know. And those people are going to be 
Black Brazilian uh, professors and students. So um, what we can, you know, everyone has uh, something that they can do to contribute. So as an academic, what can I do? I can connect people with um, Black Brazilian researchers, graduate students, undergraduate students, who is not easy to get research opportunities. So if someone's going to go there, that's, you know, I'm going to say, okay, well, this is something that you can do. Um, another thing is just in terms of support, when things are happening in Brazil, and one that I'm thinking about immediately was during the pandemic. And so there were lots of groups, indigenous groups, LGBTQ plus groups, black groups coming together to raise money um, because there were people like the, the poverty was already, you know, had increased under their past conservative, um, extremely conservative president, um, Bolsonaro. And so they had a campaign um, to raise money so that people could actually go out into neighborhoods and feed people. Um, and so on the US side, um, my work with the US Network for Democracy in Brazil, we supported the groups who were already doing work, like doing the work that needed to be done. Um, and so we also helped to, you know, to fundraise. Um, so again, that's just um, another example of something practical, right? So if you if you're not in contact with the people, you wouldn't even, you know, you wouldn't even know like, oh, this is an easy way. Um, the last time I checked, the exchange rate was five to one. So our one U.S. dollar is worth, you know, five um, Brazilian reais. And so I, you know, I was sending text messages to friends. Oh, can you donate, you know, 20, 20 U.S.? That's 100 reais. That, that is very helpful. <laughs> so these are, you know, small things, but small things can lead to very big things. Um, and then, like I said, it actually does mean a lot just to be able to talk about everyday experiences with people. Um, and so some of the, um, especially when I was be like beginning out as a researcher and scholar, um, sometimes I met Brazilians at conferences. And guess what? When I was a broke graduate student, <laughs> People let me stay with them for free. Um, so these are just like small things. And, you know, and it's reciprocal. If someone's coming here, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I know someone here or there. Um, but really building those type of relationships make it a lot easier when we need to support each other for big things. Right. And we have had um, Brazilians to come here and present it to Congress. Um, people have came and met with Congressional Black Caucus members. So there are also high level, um, you know, things happening between the two countries and between Black people in the two countries. Um, the Washington Brazil office um, has played a, a, a large role in facilitating some of these um, things in terms of having activists and Congress people to, you know, come over to, or, you know, to go to each country. Um, and so, for me, that is, those are just some of those, you know, practical, like, okay, well, what can result from this conference? One would be that we can support each other, um, that we can also, another, another thing is, you know, when people are coming here, if I know that there's a Brazilian activist coming, I can tell a colleague, oh, 
there's someone coming here. You should also invite them to your campus. Um, so, but we do that by building um, these type of uh, relationships through, you know, having a symposium or a conference. Um, the second, like I said, for me, which is big, is recruitment. You know, I'm here um, as an endowed chair, so I'm teaching, I'm doing research, um, service, those type of things. But if I can recruit, um, you know, that would that would be great. Um, so, yeah, so those are some of the practical results I would love to see. You mentioned several Brazilian women who are actively engaged in the politics of uh, Brazil. Uh, in this country, uh, it has been. Uh, recognize that uh, African-American women are uh, the uh, backbone of the uh, African-American political movement uh, and have uh, contributed uh, mightily to uh, the success, particularly of uh, Democratic uh, candidates uh, for office all over the uh, country. Is there a comparison that can be made with the degree of uh, participation in politics by uh, Brazilian women that rival what it is that we see here in the United States? That is a great question. Um, and so I would say yes. Um, you know, and so a lot of what I've been seeing is, and this is since, gosh, I don't know, just in terms of kind of even in mainstream media, people talking about the important role of Black Brazilian women in deciding an election, right? So even in Brazil that has this history of saying, oh yeah, we don't have racism and you know, we don't have distinctions by race, um, people explicitly acknowledge the role and power of black women voters. Um, now in Brazil, voting is mandatory. So that's very different, <laughs> right, in the U.S. Um, they also have over 30 political parties, um, which, you know, we do not have. Um, so there are those type of kind of institutional differences, but there is still an acknowledgement of the, the power of Black women voters. What is interesting about Brazil is that, so along with those, you know, numerous political parties, they also, so unlike in the US where we can say um, that most African-Americans are Democrats, um, in Brazil, it's different, right? So um, you can look at certain elections and then you can you know, find that, oh yes, in this presidential election, for example, um, most Afro-Brazilians voted for Lula, for example, but the, the last president that they had that I just mentioned, um, I believe it was 47%, so almost half of Afro-Brazilians voted for Bolsonaro, a very extremely conservative and not just conservative, but racist, like explicitly racist, sexist, homophobic, homophobic, transphobic, like you can go down, right? And they and people voted for him, right? So there is more variation in uh, political party allegiance in Brazil than in the U.S. among Afro-descendants. Mm -hmm. However, still, when you look at, um, for example, the Northeast, 
which is predominantly Afro-Brazilian, they tend to vote for um, leftist candidates or leftist presidents. The other, what I found in the, in my research, and again, this is why I think, um, I think it's great that we're focusing on race and gender, is because when you look at these intersections, that's when you find different results. So, um, and one is that um, a lot of the uh, scholars examining, well, why did people vote for Bolsonaro? They'll say, oh, well, they were evangelical. It was because of religion and things like that. But for my samples, what I found, first of all, for both countries, most of the women um, had some type of religious affiliation. Um, so I'm saying like over 50% of the women did. And some like very high levels, um, you know, like 80% or something um, by the city. But in both cases, they both supported leftist candidates. And in Brazil, even though most of the women were evangelical, again, we're talking about low-income Afro-Brazilian women, they, they voted for the leftist candidate. That is actually a finding that is um, in contrast to the literature to the political science literature, because the political science literature is that, oh, evangelicals vote this way. However, mm -hmm. when you start looking at these intersections that lead to different experiences, women have different outcomes. And so I think that is why um, Black women uh, have, uh, that people acknowledge, right, their power, because Black women have certain uh, insights. Patricia Hill Collins, uh, a Black feminist, uh, sociologist and scholar talks about this um, in unique outsider within knowledge or perspective that black women have. And so that's why they um, may be more likely to support certain candidates or certain political parties um, because of the experiences that they have. So um, long answer, but the short answer to your <laughs> question is that I would say that yes, um, black Brazilian women also um, are acknowledged for that their voting be, uh, voting power um, and also for um, for the important role they play. So so much of what you said is is fascinating. I wish we could go on, um, but we're out of time. The good news is that you have the symposium coming up on Tuesday. And so for those who are listening on Sunday to the show, you still have time to, to sign up and hear more about uh, the great discussion that's gonna be had concerning black women and politics and the similarities and differences between Brazil and the United States and how people can come together to collaborate, support, nurture, and um, we, want to thank you so much, um, our guest, Dr. Gladys Mitchell Walthour. She is the Dan T. Blue Endowed Chair at North Carolina Central University. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagorevue at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.